Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I wanted to share an episode on the feed that's actually from Genomics England's new podcast called The G Word. Chris Wigley, who's the CEO of Genomics England and the host of the podcast, invited me on to talk about some of the work we're doing at Sano to accelerate personalized medicine research with our online platform, as well as some of my past uh, research work during my PhD. We also had a great conversation about how government initiatives like Genomics England industry like us at Sano and, and pharma biotech companies, as well as patients and participants can come together to accelerate research. And I thought I'd just share this episode in the podcast generally, because I've been listening to it myself, really enjoying it. And I thought that you all might too. Uh, in particular, I really wanted to recommend one of the recent episodes with Christine Patch. And there's an earlier episode in the feed with Andrew Rodham, who's leading a new project in the UK to genetically test around 5 million people in order to accelerate research into common disease like Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease. It was really interesting listening to Chris, who's the CEO of Genomics England, where they've really, to date, focused primarily on rare disease and cancer, but are starting to do more sequencing across the NHS. Talk to Andrew, who's focused on this very large scale and, and very different in some ways project that's more focused on later onset Alzheimer's cardiovascular disease. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the podcast and uh, feel free to get in touch with us at podcast at sonogenetics.com. If you have any guest recommendations, want to give any feedback or anything else. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics, that's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G Word. So it's my pleasure to be joined on the G Word today with Dr. Patrick Short. Patrick, how are you? I'm great today. Yeah, thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Good. Welcome to the pod. And you are the co-founder and the CEO of Sano Genetics. And by background, you're a genomic researcher, a bioinformatician. You've done a bunch of stuff, which we're going to dig into. But maybe before we get to Sano, we'd love to understand how did you get into bioinformatics, genomics? You know, were you kind of one of those five-year-old kids who's kind of building space rockets in the garage? Or like, um, you know, how did you, how did you get into the field? Not, I wasn't exactly one of those kids. If uh, my, my dad will tell you that I had a lot of really failed inventions as a kid. One time I tried to make a uh, one of those summer, we call them bucket hats in the US with uh, solar cells on it and computer fans to keep myself uh, cool in the summer, but it didn't work at all. So I, I was actually more of a math guy, uh, not so much hands-on uh, physics or engineering. But when I went to, uni um, as you can, you, you and your listeners can tell from my accent, I'm from the US. I went to university and I was originally actually going to study math and business. I thought I wanted to go into finance or something like that. I really didn't like my first economics class. So I switched to math and biology and I had a really great uh, biology intro bio 101 who said you should really check out this genetics thing. It was probably around 2007, right when you've seen the graphs and lots of your listeners have seen the graphs, right when the cost of sequencing was starting to, to crater 
Um, and he said, you should check this thing out. So I, uh, I did, and I thought it was really interesting. We had, you know, I had history of rare disease in, in parts of my family. So I kind of had it around the, the dinner table as conversation as well. Um, and so I studied math and biology in university. And then I moved over here to the UK to do my PhD in program called Mathematical Genomics and Medicine. And, and that's how I got into it really in a nutshell. There you go. In fact, I went to one economics class at university as well and uh, ditched economics as well um, and picked up picked up computer science, which turned out to uh, then turned into a startup that I did in the 90s around uh, web design. Um, so there you go. We, we all have our first. We have our microeconomics teachers to thank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For our careers. Um, so you came over here, um, worked on your PhD and then with uh, a friend of the pod, uh, Matt Hurls, um, you worked on this this big program, Deciphering Developmental Disorders, or DDD. Um, tell us what that was. Yeah, it, it, it's an amazing project, and and I was a PhD student that worked on it, so can can take zero credit for helping to set it up, think of it, create it. I, I basically showed up at the right time, um, but Matt and Helen Firth and a number of other um clinicians and clinician scientists and scientists across the UK really um, you know, set this project up and, and made it what it is today. But in a nutshell, it's at this point, I think it's over 10,000 families in the UK where the child has a developmental disorder um, or suspected developmental disorder. And exome sequencing was done in the child as well as both parents. And in, in most of these cases, the, the family had already received some kind of standard of care genetic testing in the health service they weren't able to find a diagnosis. So, so the participating clinicians, there's more than 100 across the country, uh, would then refer them into this research program, DDD, um, uh, Deciphering Developmental Disorders. And in that project, I worked on a, a program, a work that was focused around the non-coding genome. So looking at things outside of the protein coding regions. Um, and the, the team has done a ton of incredible work on the protein coding parts, which in some ways is kind of the big story over the last uh, 10 years that's come out of that project. Um, but I worked on a, an interesting kind of side part of it that happy to tell you about and focused on the non-coding genome, which I know you talk about a lot these days because we didn't have whole genomes in that project, but you do now. Oh, well, I was going to say the whole field is moving so fast, right? So just place this in time for us. Like when were you working on this? I was working on it from, I'm going to have to go back in my uh, mind and make sure time is, is mashing together. I graduated in 2018 from my PhD. So it was 2014-15 through to 2018 that I worked on it. But the project itself started several years before that, because as you know, the data collection and getting things up and running took, you know, many years actually to to mobilize. Yeah, it's always remarkable how, uh, how complicated it is to get these things um these things moving which only actually complete side note highlights how rapidly so much stuff got done um during the pandemic um it is it is remarkable through your work there you're a phd or postdoc person working on a pretty deeply technical subject around you know what can we learn from the non-coding regions of the genome to do with these developmental disorders um how, if at all, at that point, did you feel connected to the the human beings who, you know, this project was being done for and with and so on? Yeah, one of the things that the that the DDD project uh, did really well uh, was organize an annual meeting that invited participants and, and members of nonprofit organizations, members of the community where the scientists working on the projects, the clinicians actually presented 
uh, what half all the work that was done over the past year to that group. And I remember the first one of those that I went to, I had a real personal light bulb moment where there were also families and participants that were invited to to present and take part. And one of them shared the fact that they received a diagnosis as part of the project. There was no treatment or cure yet, but they connected with other families on Facebook and other groups. And, and that was a light bulb moment to me that the the mere diagnosis or giving a you know giving this rare disease a name was actually a really powerful thing that starts then a cascade of events, including finding community, forming things like nonprofit groups, creating um, you know potentially future therapeutics. I guess it feels these days like a privilege to be able to actually get hundreds of people together in person and meet each other, build community, talk talk about these things, right? How did meeting the participants impact your work, um, if at all? Because I, I get that it was a very technical topic. No, it it it, it really did impact it in, in the sense that we're working on a, when you're thinking about what are the measures of success as a PhD student or postdoc, it's, it's often about answering, you know, a big enough or important enough scientific question that you can write a paper about it and, and move the field along in some way. Um, and sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees in that, especially if you're really focused on the fundamental biology and not taking a step back to say, what are the, there are scientific aims that we're working towards here, but what are the concrete aims? And in the case of the DDD project, we could always quantify what we were doing in the impact of those 10,000 families that were part of that project because of the way it was linked up with the clinical groups that any discovery that was made by the postdocs, PhD student scientists that were working on the project could be fed back to clinicians, validated in their labs, and then returned to families. And, and you know, I, th- I don't know what the numbers are, but it's probably approaching 30 or 40% of families that were able to get a diagnosis through this. So it was, it, it's, I think it's a real power of some of the translational research that's being done that you can not only answer interesting fundamental biological questions, but also um, you know, impact people directly in the process. And, and that was really personally motivating for me because I really like the science, uh, of course, but the, the human element also is, is incredibly exciting and important. For sure. Yeah, it's those human stories that, that get us out of bed in the morning, right? And um, how did you go from that work to Sano? Did it, were you lying in a bath and you sort of said, Eureka, I know what I need to do. Like, where did the I'm always fascinated with startups or, you know, being a founder. Was there an aha moment? Was it something that had been kind of creeping up on you gradually? Did you get drunk and have a conversation in a bar? Like, where did it come from? Yeah, it's a, it's interesting. And I'm also conscious that in retrospect, it's it's sometimes a little bit hard to remember exactly how these things play out. And they can be editorialized a little bit. So like a perfect, perfect narrative. <laughs> yeah, no, but the way I remember it. So we, myself, Will and Charlotte, three co-founders, experienced very similar problems in our PhD work. Not so much a problem, but something that was clear that could be done much better from the scientist side, which was there were these huge data sets being collected, biobanks, population scale, precision medicine initiatives. Um, But the link to the participant from those databases to the participant often didn't exist at all. And from a scientific perspective, that meant we were fashioning our hypotheses and what we could do to the data that was available. So to give you a concrete example, in in the DDD project, um, incredible scale and amount of data, but there were certain questions that were just logistically impossible to do because there was no direct link back to the participant. It was through the clinician. And, and what I want to make sure is clear here is that it's not about cutting the clinician out, but 
most, you know, the, I don't know what the percentage is, but the vast majority of clinicians, their day job is seeing patients, not supporting research. So it's about building hybrid models that enable participants, clinicians, scientists to come together to do things much more effectively and, and in particular use software much more effectively to collect data direct from participants. So participant reported outcomes when it makes sense or to loop um, clinicians into the scientific process to make it easier for them to provide data that may be available only in a clinical setting that that participants can have. So, so we saw that from the research side, there was a real opportunity to to strengthen that link between the the participant, the clinician, and the scientist to to make that work happen much more effectively. And then on the participant side, we saw, and from ourselves taking part in research studies where we mailed, you know, I uh, mailed urine or blood or things like that to different parts of the world that the participant experience itself was very analog. So actually taking part in research wasn't anything like all of the modern digital technologies we have today. You, you know, things like mobile banking have come a very long way in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, obviously ordering food has come a very long way, but taking part in research is still a, a fairly analog process. So we felt like there was a real um, opportunity to both accelerate what could be done on a research side, but also create a better participant experience and and therefore widen the opportunity of who can take part as well, because there is a, a pretty high barrier to taking part in research sometimes, including travel and time you need to take off work and, and things you need to do to actually just do something that may be fundamentally altruistic, like taking part in research or, or something that helps you personally. Um, in the case of a, you know, a project focused around diagnostics or, or treatments like a clinical trial. That's great. And at the risk of sounding like someone on Dragon's Den, like what's the what's the business model? Who do you sell what to? Or is it, yeah, or how are you funded? Is it is it partly philanthropically funded or, or what's the business model? Yeah, so what we do fundamentally is we built a software platform that powers the uh, participants to connect with researchers and researchers connect with participants. So we make money in two ways. The first is we work with academic, biotech, pharma companies to help them run their research studies much more effectively using our software. So um, that includes better ways of finding participants, screening participants to see if they're likely to be eligible for studies, and then connecting those participants to the studies. The second way is working with existing biobanks and precision medicine initiatives where either data has already been collected or um, part or, or data is planned to be collected in the future and working with those groups to actually build a participant portal where participants who take part in that research study can have one place where they can go to see how's my data being used what new research opportunities are there for me in the future um, and and what's happening with my data that's being uh, used in part of this this particular project and in that case we we work with the biobanks and research initiatives to to offer that software to them and their participants where the research initiative pays for that software got it so the so the first model is almost i don't know if it's overly flippant to say something like sort of tinder for researchers and participants it's like you're effectively making a market right it's like how can we, we've got these people these researchers who need participants we've got these uh these communities that need research done on their um on their thing and the, and the second one is effectively a your account type uh, facility, right? His, you know, your package is eight stops away or, you know, his, his other products you might like or 
Yeah, to, that's right. To some extent, it's an idea of a of a managed marketplace. So you have you know participants are in all sorts of places in the world, right? They're um, working, interacting with nonprofit organizations. They're part of existing research programs. They themselves are forming patient organizations. Um, and for the researchers who are running these research studies, it's it's really challenging, as as you'll know, to find the right participants who are interested and have the right data. And, and the participants have the opposite problem, which is if I'm looking for a, a clinical trial, for example, how do I find one that's right for me? And especially what if my clinician isn't plugged in? Um, you'll hear you know, from people all the time who may not have, uh, may not be getting the right support from their clinical team. Um, and it's empowering those clinical teams as well to understand uh, what is the right clinical trial, if, if it's a clinical trial for a participant um, or observational studies. So can we do at-home genetic testing to better understand why uh, some people go on to develop more severe forms of a disease while others don't? And, and like you say, it's building that ecosystem, that platform in the middle that makes that process go from, our, our goal is that it shouldn't take 15 years for a new discovery to go from the lab to the, the healthcare system, but can we get that much more quickly by building a, a system where the participant themselves is at the center and is empowered to find research that's relevant to them and, and take part in it. Great. And another interesting dimension for me is like the different types of research. And, you know, if I'm a researcher who is trying to develop, I don't know, a better inhaler for asthma, right, a medical device, I can see I would need to engage with humans all day, every day, how does it feel in the hand? Can you actually breathe properly with it? You know, how does it work? All of that kind of IDO, what shape should a tooth, toothbrush be kind of type hands-on engagement with, uh, with users and, and in that sense, uh, participants. If I'm a researcher who is, say, working on some fundamental science, like I'm just listening to this fantastic uh, book at the moment called The Code Breaker, which is a, a, the story of kind of Jennifer Doudna and the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, experience. And suddenly in the early days there, I mean, they were hardcore in the lab trying to figure out about mRNA, um, you know, how it works um, and quite far from specific applications. It, is it right to think of it as being there is a more direct connection, the, the more applied we get and there's a, there's a less direct connection, the, the more upstream we are. And, and if that's right, how can we increase the strength of the links with researchers doing fundamental work and the participants who will, who will hopefully ultimately benefit from that work. Yeah, I, I love this question. And we thought about this a lot in the early days of starting the company. And, and we still do because so the way we think about the research to healthcare divide is you can go more and more granular, but at the very high level, there's the discover phase, the develop phase, and then the deliver phase. Um, where discover is, you know, biomarkers, drugs, targets, develop is primarily clinical trials and all the things around it. And then develop, deliver is, is the healthcare system itself. And I, I completely agree with you that generally speaking, the further you go from left to right, the more involved, you know, people are. Um, and this is one of the big challenges, I think, with the early stage research in the discovery is that there's not much in it for participants, generally speaking. You're asked to donate blood, saliva, fill out surveys. And all that really happens is uh, things happen in the lab for three years, 90% of it fails. And sometimes people write a paper, sometimes not. So the the second phase clinical trials and the third phase deliver is much more clear because there's a value proposition to participants there, right? I'm If I want to find a clinical trial 
and take part in it, it's because I think it'll help me or, or someone in my family. What we're trying to do in the early stage is, is give participants back something in the short, medium, and long term, regardless of whether that particular research study that they're in is going to bear fruit now or in the future. So this can be simple things like um, acknowledging their contribution and, and letting them know about progress updates. So one of the things we heard in our early kind of product development workshops with participants is that I actually just want to hear that I'm making a difference and that things are happening, that my sample's been received, it's been analyzed, and, and things are happening. Um, and, and also more ways of learning about themselves and what the new research means to them, even if it's not necessarily um, actionable or or in the mainstream yet today, but digestible updates of the latest research that's happening that's relevant to me and my family. So way we've built the platform is to give people monthly updates on conditions that are relevant to them or their family of the new research, personalized genetic reports to the extent that it's possible. We try to stay away from clinically relevant reports, but things like traits, as you know, are, are changing. Um, there's new research that comes out every day. So giving people something back uh, in that early stages, I think is really critical so that they they can get that instant or near instant feedback of of taking part when when even if it's not the research itself that's bearing instant fruit, but actually their participation in it is giving them personally something back for it. Got it. And in this world of, you know, we've talked about digital apps for banking. I'm sitting here wearing a smartwatch that's measuring my heart rate, as are you, <laughs> I can see. Is there also an opportunity to bring in these other sources of data. And I guess I would maybe roll things like social determinants of health in here as well, like ambient uh, data like air pollution or I don't know, other stuff. Are you as a group thinking about how to broaden, I guess, the diversity of the types of data sets that can, can uh, contribute to this research as well beyond the kind of blood, saliva, kind of mainstream medical record type core assets? Yes, yes, we are, and and uh, we did we did some work actually you know, through the partnership that um, that we we won a grant working with some of your team at Genomics England, and we did a lot of work with the um, with that team and members of the Hundred Thousand Genomes Project to ask the question from the participant perspective of which of these things, if added to a research platform, would be useful to you, and we try to look at each of them through both lenses because we sit at the intersection between research and. And participants, if we think about something like wearables, um, what are the research contexts that it's helpful in? But also for participants, are are they going to get anything out of linking this? Are there issues with, does everybody have a different watch or most people don't even have a watch? So do we get them out to people? If so, how do we do this in a way that makes sense? So some of the things that we've looked at and that are on our long-term roadmap are better linkage of clinical records. So can participants get access to their entire medical records uh, for, for their purposes, and at the same time have the option to uh, make those available to researchers on their terms. Linking wearable devices is a big one. Um, and also, as, as you mentioned, new sources of sample collection like blood. And, and so we, we have at-home saliva testing already, but we're adding at-home uh, non-invasive or, or minimally invasive blood collection as well. And thinking about how we go very deep on an individual level in building a picture that's both relevant for them, but also helps to move the research forward. Wow. And yeah, that, that piece about um, accessing your own medical records, and I guess feeling some sense of empowerment over those as well is really interesting. It struck me that one of the things 
that happened through the last year and a half of the pandemic has been that I and a lot of other people I know for the first time actually downloaded the the NHS app as well as the separate COVID app, the core NHS app. I've managed to figure out, I went through some authentication process and got my NHS number. Um, I now log my uh, test results and things and the vaccine in the NHS app. And looking at my medical records in there, they're pretty incomplete, right? I moved around uh, GPs from when I was a student. We moved houses. Um, you know, I broke my leg in six places. That's not on. That's not on there. And I feel this sense of like I want to do something about it, right? I, I can update my mobile number. That's fine. That's good. I can now run a bunch of stuff through text messages, like appointments and stuff. There are obviously really hardworking and smart people in places like NHS Digital, continually making all of these things better. How can we think about giving that sense of agency and control to patients, to participants. Yeah, so, so we have a, a little bit of a concept internally where we think about a research record versus a, um, a health record because they're really, and, and you know you all have this as well, I think at Genomics England, they're, they're two different things, which is the health record, which is written and maintained by, um, you know, by your doctor or, or set of doctors. Um, and, and then there's information that you can annotate or add on top of that that may get merged into the health record over time. Um, but really, we see these as two kind of parallel streams that, that can feed together. So giving, giving participants a way to, to your point, view, view those records, make their own additions, corrections, updates. Um, those can live independently in the participants record and, and in a research record. Uh, but they should be able to be merged in over time as well to to the medical record and building those bridges back and forth where um, where you have these these different streams that are useful in different contexts I think will be will be really powerful there's I think we think a lot in genetics in particular about the medical record being useful as a as a gold standard um, phenotype or you know set of diagnoses but we don't actually think enough about the reverse, which is when it's wrong or when it's incomplete, um, and how we can merge those two together effectively, the, the participant's experience and the medical record, and, and think of it not as an either or of, of which one's better, but actually as how do we get the truth by combining these two sources in a, in a, a clever way. For sure. And we, and we start dealing with some very, very intimate data sets at this point, right? Particularly things like wearables. Um, there was that what's the word sort of furore i guess when um strava open sourced a lot of the location data from the people who've been using the strava app all all anonymized de-identified you know not individually linkable but it immediately showed up a bunch of american people running around some place in uh the sudanese desert or something and there's all these headlines like secret cia base kind of uh outed by strava data because <laughs> it's a bunch of cia guys going for their morning run or whatever in the, in the sudanese desert and there are all sorts of other uh horror stories about teams all getting fitbit and then um two members of the team kind of uh, their heart rate tends to go up at exactly the same time sort of 10 30 at night on a on a friday and so everyone else in the team realizes what's going on so these these are incredibly intimate data details that that we're collecting here obviously we think about data security and privacy and so on but how do we make them useful while not being inappropriate in how that level of personal information is is sort of used or shared yeah i think this is one of the most challenging things in particular balancing the the, the data privacy and protections against uh, and and the transparency and 
and choice on the part of the participants with with you know research that needs to be done. The way that we've thought about this at Sano and and uh, you know we've gone through a couple of evolutions of this since the beginning is at the core of our model is the participant being in in the driver's seat of of how their data is used and and by who. But how how you choose to set that up, I think, can make a really big impact on how impactful or not impactful um, the, the sharing of data is. What we've heard from participants is, is first and foremost, there's a variety of opinions and how people want their data to be shared. So you, to some extent, have to cater for that and give people a few different broad options. What seems to be what we hear from most people is they want their data to be shared widely with researchers assuming that it's shared appropriately and that they have transparency into who it's being shared with and the ability to say, you know, to, to raise their hand and say, that's not what I want. And that's not who I wanted it to be shared with. But most people from, from our research want their data to be shared so that advancements can be made and, and therapies can be created. Uh, some people want to have tight control over their data and to be able to opt in or out of um, people seeing it on a very granular level. From our research, that's a minority of people, but um, you know, in the five to ten percent range, who say, "Actually, I'd, I'd love if you pinged me every time a new party was going to access my sensitive health data and, and let me um, opt in or out of that." Uh, whereas the majority of people say, "I, I am comfortable with giving." some level of trust uh, to a third party who can manage those on my behalf. So if they know that there's an organization like Genomics England or other biobank they're a part of um, that, that is actually acting on their behalf to make decisions on, on who can see and, and acting in a transparent and ethical way. So really it's, it's that transparency and trust in the, in the organization that's holding their data and, and the ability to they themselves act if they need to, that, that seems to be a key theme. I guess this becomes even more sensitive for some people, arguably many people, when we're talking about commercial research and about biotech and pharma kind of paying for access to, to data. There's lots of different schools of thought on how best to understand and reflect a range of goals that can seem contradictory around privacy and consent, around breadth of access, around Paying, paying for access to data versus getting data for free and then selling therapeutics back um, at a profit. I, d I don't know if you as Sano have a perspective on this, but what are you, what are you hearing from the patients and participants that you talk to? Yeah, we, we, our perspective is, um, is that different patients and participants do, do themselves have different preferences on this. And, and our view on it, generally speaking, is, is we should be as transparent as possible on a you know, on how we operate as a company, but also on a particular study or or data collection level, to say we are partnered with a pharmaceutical company or a biotechnology company for this study, and that's that's abundantly clear from the outset. So, if for you personally, you don't want to be involved in this kind of research, that's your prerogative. Um, or if you'd like to be involved in academic research, where you you know where you feel better about it, we found that actually less than ten percent of people who use our platform. Um, have a, have a strong kind of something strong against pharma biotech, um, but 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 it is you know it is something important to consider, and I I think the transparency aspect goes a long way. Where in our experience, where people where it upsets people more is to find out that it's happening and they didn't know about it. If it's abundantly clear from the beginning of we're doing this because these companies are trying to develop treatments, um, you know that that 
will hopefully help you and others like you. And we're working with them on this and here's the commercial relationship and here's how it works. Then people can actually engage in a much more nuanced conversation to, to say, for example, Hey, shouldn't participants who take part in this get a free treatment if it succeeds? Yeah. And, and that's one of the important and interesting conversations rather than making it black and white of, um, you know, pharma and biotech are, are no good and, and nonprofit academic research is good. We find that people can then have much more, I guess, nuanced conversations around. We acknowledge the role of, um, you know, for profit companies in this whole process. How do we make it better rather than, um, calling it black and white? Absolutely. And I get a personal view. I think that we can and should be both, as you say, transparent, but also confident in having these conversations. And I think conversation one is, yes, we're working with this company, which is a for-profit company. Um, that is the model that has proven most effective in the history of the world in developing new treatments for drugs. So if we want to be able to, new treatments for conditions. So if we want to be able to not just diagnose, but also treat this condition, this is a model that seems to work. I don't know if this is true or not. This is unvalidated. Anecdotally, there are as many Nobel Prizes for biology from the sort of Russia and the Eastern Bloc as there, as there are from kind of UK, Europe and, and the US since World War II. No new drugs have come out of um, the, the format. Obviously, tons of drugs have come out of the other. The, there is something about this model which which works in terms of developing um, new treatments. And I, and I think that acknowledging that is an important part of transparency. But I think there's another element to this, which is that it's okay for there to be a value exchange. And one of the things that I've been struck by talking to um, participants and patients is there's a value exchange with academia as well. I was talking, in fact, to one of our 100,000 uh, Genome Project participants who was saying with a slightly sort of wry smile, they'd been talking to this academic research team and they said, oh, and it's great for you, the participants who are taking part in this research, because we're going to be making these discoveries and that will hopefully help you and so on. And the participants said, well, what's in it for you? And they said, no, 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 but we want to talk about what's in it for you. They're like, no, but we want to talk about what's in it for you, right? And, you know, so presumably if you do well here, you get a paper in nature and that's good for your career and so on. And the, the, the researchers had looked like really shifty and been like, well, uh, yeah, but, you know, that's not important. It's about like the greater human good and stuff and the participants were like it's okay man <laughs> like it's it's fine <laughs> like we want you to succeed in your career that's fine we're, we're glad that this will help you do that if that helps us understand our condition more you know that's that's right you could do more research and and uh, and help us understand our condition more yeah <laughs> yeah and that's like that's okay and so i think there's there's something about how do we get all of the players in this game to feel more confident about about their agendas, right? And what, and what they're looking for. Like, it, it's okay for there to be a value exchange. That's, that's, you know, that's what collaboration looks like. And, and, and I think, you know, to your point, not talking about it is kind of the worst thing we can do because it's, it is, it is how the system works. And in my, in my view, being transparent about it, talking about it and working to improve it, uh, it is really the way forward. One of the interesting examples, I think, where things have changed a lot due to some bold moves by, um, by players like the UK Biobank is some of the discussions around exclusivity. So one of the big um, kind of bones to pick with a lot of people, I think rightly is, is exclusivity around very large data sets um, because ultimately what part, what patients, participants, and most people want is as many smart eyeballs as possible to be pointed at a data set to solve problems. But sometimes this runs in direct conflict with, 
what if we're not, what if the resource doesn't get created in the first place because no one puts up. And I, I think groups like the UK Biobank have threaded the needle really effectively to say it's a nine month or 12 month exclusivity period, which is enough for the commercial parties to get, you know, get some commercial edge out of investing in this, but it's really not a long time in the grand scheme of things. And and after those 12 months, it's open to absolutely everyone. And, and you all have a, a very different model, which is it's funded by the government. And so you're able to do non-exclusive non access in a very different way. But I think it's if businesses like us, it's really interesting to think about how we can replicate models like the UK Biobank and others to say, if there's something that wasn't being created before because no one wanted to offer exclusivity and no one was able to, uh, you know, no one was willing to accept exclusivity, is there a way to do it in, in a triple win where everyone gets, um, you know, science moves forward and everyone gets something out of it rather than being stuck at a, at a kind of log jam where nothing happens? I, I agree with you. I think it's a really uh, useful um, kind of case law in terms of developing these kinds of setups where, as you say, everyone everyone benefits and actually you can unlock uh, unlock more research being done. I think that it, it all comes back to the best kind of two-word synthesis of this is Dame Fiona Caldecott, which is no surprises. Um, to your point about the people, what patients and participants or people generally get uh, really cross about is when they find out something's been done um, either with their data or um, about involving them in some way that they didn't know about. That's yeah. That's when you're you're breaking the no surprises rule. Super. So we have, we're talking now about genomics. We're talking about Sano. We're talking about data and uh, privacy and so on. This is part of a wider aspiration that we have as Genomics England around um, convening something of a national conversation around genomics. As we do that, are there either topics or individuals that you don't think get enough airtime that we should use this series to bring to the fore? Uh, one of the topics that I'd I'd love for you to bring to the fore and thinking about how we do this in our podcast as well is, is uh, diversity in genomics. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of people who talk about it and, but it strikes at the heart of some of these challenges that, that we have, as you, as you know, there's a, negative reinforcing loop where the more Caucasian um, dominated data sets that are created, the more that findings are focused in those groups and don't generalize more widely. Um, and it's a vicious cycle. So so and I think breaking that cycle is, is really challenging and requires people from all kinds of different parts of, um, of the ecosystem to come together. So I think that's a really interesting uh, area that as, as we see things like polygenic risk scores and genetic testing more broadly, there's a will for it to go into the healthcare system, but we know right now that it's not um, generalizable to everyone. Um, so, so I think that's a big area. The, the second one, I guess, is the the transition more broadly from, I hesitate to call it to, to precision medicine or personalized medicine, but toward something that's more more and more precise or personalized than it is today. Um, I think it's, from my perspective, there are some things that have moved really quickly, like cancer. Um, and and in the last 20 years, things have changed dramatically. I think there are other parts of our ecosystem that haven't probably moved nearly as quickly as we might have thought and and digging into why why things haven't changed as much in some of these areas and what we need to do to, to fix them, I think would be really interesting. So po polygenic scores, for example, I think haven't the academic data seems to be really stacking up. Um, but for some reason, it hasn't made the jump in any meaningful way into the healthcare system. And 
figuring out why that is in, in the UK, where in theory we have a system that uh, that could embrace something like this. Uh, or, or in the US, maybe there's different issues like the way the system is set up from a uh, financial perspective. But I, those are two that are, I think are, I guess, related, but interesting to me. Very, very cool. And more to come, especially on the uh, diversity piece. Um, we were given some funding in the spending review from last year that uh, we're now in the financial year that's just that's just kicked off, um, specifically around moving towards making the um, the national genomic data sets as representative, well, as diverse or more um, as the UK population. It's not a problem we're going to solve in one year, but um, we, yeah, we'll definitely have lots to say about that. So watch, watch this space. And on the personalized medicine piece, I agree, it's really fascinating. In fact, Eric Topol, who was our, our first ever guest on the G-Word, um, has this fantastic phrase, which is every disease is a rare disease because it's in you. Um, and I think we're increasingly finding how true that is in, in all areas. Um, of disease so yeah more to come on that front as well fantastic thank you for giving us our marching orders and um, Patrick thanks for taking the time today really really good to talk my pleasure thank you Chris I, I really enjoyed it. and I've been listening to lots of the episodes of the podcast and uh, it's uh, it's it's amazing you're doing a phenomenal job and getting some great guests so I'm really honored to to have been a part of it more more you can <laughs> you can come back <laughs> excellent thanks a lot <laughs> Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.